Thanks for tuning in to Mountain View Fellowship's weekly podcast with lead pastor Don Headley. At MVF, our mandate is pointing people to Jesus by fostering relationships. We know Jesus cared for people and placed a lot of emphasis on relationships. So we do too. We believe that we're created for relationship with God and that he gave each one of us a desire to belong. If you'd like more information about MVF, connect with us at mvfcolorado.com. Now, stay tuned for this week's message. We're going to take a little bit of time. We're going to go through a great passage out of Luke chapter 10, verse 25 through 37. Go ahead and grab the Word of God. Flip over to that because that's where we're going to be, and I want you reading along with us today. Some of you might know this passage. This is one of the most well-known, most powerful parables that Jesus ever told. It's called the parable of the Good Samaritan. An expert in Mosaic law tries to test Jesus, and Jesus rocks his world with a simple story about living life in the here and now. Luke chapter 10, verse 25 through 29, this whole story starts off like this. One day, an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replied, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? The man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus told him, do this and you will live. The man wanted to justify his actions, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? See, during this time, the Jewish leaders have been trying to find a reason to kill Jesus because he threatened their way of life. They wanted him gone, and so Jesus knew that they were trying to trap him. And this expert comes to Jesus with more than just a question. See, it's a potential trap, and Jesus knows it. His question is reasonable, and it's important, but it's not easy. See, with hundreds of laws in the Old Testament and thousands of oral traditions that they followed every day, how's a guy to know which one is essential to obtaining eternal life? Isn't it amazing how well Jesus understands people? I mean, he knows this expert would rather talk than listen, and so he invites him to give his own personal interpretation to the law. After all, this is his field. And his answer is actually excellent. It's, it's actually the same answer that Jesus himself would give. You can check out Matthew chapter 23 or Mark 12 for that. See, being God's child boils down to, to this, loving God with everything that we have and loving God's children with the same type of love. The first and greatest commandment is what the Jews refer to as Shema. It's found in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. It says to love the Lord our God with three things. It says to love God with our heart, with our soul, and then it says everything. But because there's no equivalent Greek word to cover the Hebrew word for everything, there's actually two words that are used there in place of everything. They, they included strength and mind. The second commandment comes out of Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, and it's critical for us to understand the second one in order to understand the first one. How can we show God that we love him? Sure, you can read the Bible, you can go to church, you can pray, but you can do a lot of those things for a number of reasons other than your love for God. See, the only practical way that we can demonstrate a true love for God is by loving our neighbor. I love how Jesus congratulates the expert for answering well. 
But then with kind of like a, a little gentle nudge, he says, you know it's right, now go do it. The expert's smart. He's an expert. He knows what Jesus means. And, and I think he reads it as, hey, your answer is excellent, but your behavior, it needs some improvement. And so instead of repenting like he should have done, he does what any good hypocrite would do. He tries to justify himself. But the only way to justify yourself is to diminish the demands of the law. Since we can't live up to the law, then we've got to cut it down to our size. So if we rationalize and if we justify and we modify and we try to explain away the demands of the law, then maybe, just maybe, we'll have a chance. If you can narrow the field enough, then, then maybe you can claim that you actually love your neighbor. And the question that this expert asks, who is my neighbor, is designed to do just that. To answer the expert's question, who is my neighbor, Jesus responds with a parable. And the power of this parable is that it expands the parameters of neighborness far beyond what the expert, or let's be honest, any of us could ever imagine. Look at this, verse 30 through 35. Jesus replied with a story. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along, but when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. Then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, Take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Verse 30 starts with, in reply, Jesus said. But the Greek phrase is actually more interesting. It's got a lot more power behind it, I think. See, it could have been translated, Jesus took up the debate. This expert threw the gauntlet down, and Jesus rises to the occasion. It's almost like he's like, mm, you want to go there? Let's go there. Jesus responds with a parable that not only answers the expert's second question, who is my neighbor, but it also answers his first question, what shall I do or what should I do to inherit eternal life? The road from Jerusalem to Jericho was especially dangerous. Robbers loved it because it had all kinds of curves and caves and, and cliffs where they could hide and they could ambush people. It was actually nicknamed the Pass of Blood. We see it come up several times in the book of Joshua. So no one hearing this story was ever surprised by this parable when Jesus said that a traveler had been beaten and left for dead. It was something that happened and was commonplace for them, especially on this road. The first two people to pass were both associated with the temple. You would expect them to take some time to help this man who is in great need. But why wouldn't they stop? Both were obligated to remain ceremonial clean while on duty. And, and I, I guess if you wanted to judge favorably, you could say that if they touched a dead man, they would be disqualified from their sacred duties. But even this excuse doesn't, doesn't apply to these two guys for a couple of reasons. First of all, when preparing for their sacred duties, priests and, and Levites would, 
would never be left alone. They would always have a group of people around them to make sure that they didn't defile themselves, and they would always travel together. These men were traveling separately. Secondly, the man was traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, and if the priest and the assistant were going in the same direction, they would actually be going the wrong way. They were going away from the temple in Jerusalem. See, the bottom line is this. These guys have no excuse but selfish fear for passing him by. To test this parable, there was a study done several years ago, and it involved 40 different seminary students. They asked each of the students if they would go next door to a different building and share their thoughts on a topic. They were given a certain time to be there, and what they did is they sent them at a particular time and placed a victim, a victim, in their path just to see how these students would respond. So as these students were hurrying out from one building going to the next, 60% of the students walked right by this victim. Actually, some of them stepped over the victim to get to the studio on time. But the next person that came along was actually a Samaritan. Uh, The expert knew all about Samaritans. And actually to him, the the term good Samaritan would have been an oxymoron. See, Samaritans were these hated half-Jews whose rivalry and whose hostility had actually often ended in violence and, and sometimes were very deadly. But this unclean Samaritan is the one that took pity on the victim. Apparently seeing the man bloodied and beaten broke down the walls of this deep-seated prejudice. There was no love between these two men. There was only a need. The Samaritan saw the need and took pity on him. He bound up his wounds, perhaps making these bandages out of his clothes because we're not told that he had bandages. He poured his own wine on the wounds as a disinfectant. He also poured his own oil on his wounds. This was to soothe the pain of the wounds. Then he would put the man on his own donkey. He would spend his own money for the man's lodging, for the man's food. It was not that he liked the man at all, but it was the fact that the man was in need. See, his love took action. He loved not just with words, but with action. In this parable, we encounter three different philosophies of life. See, the thieves selfishly said, what's yours is mine. The priest and the temple assistant, they they said, what's mine is mine, and I'm going to hang on to it. But the Samaritan, surprisingly, out of all of them, said, what's mine is yours. Jesus is saying he alone is worthy to inherit eternal life. See, it's not an issue of what he was, because the fact he was a Samaritan didn't matter. What made the difference was what he did how he lived out his love. After Jesus tells the parable, he asks the question of the expert in verse 36. Take a look at this. Now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? Jesus asked. The man replied, the one who showed him mercy. Then Jesus said, yes, now go and do the same. The phrase was a neighbor to the man could actually be translated literally to who became a neighbor to the man. See, neighborness is not a characteristic inherent to an individual or to a location. It's the way that you and I behave toward the people that we encounter every day in our lives. It's how we express the love of Christ to the world around us. What's amazing to me is in response to Jesus' question, this expert, he couldn't even bring himself to say the word Samaritan. He just said the one who showed more mercy. But he couldn't ignore the obvious lesson of this parable. See, with this parable, Jesus had answered both questions that the expert had asked. Not only who is my neighbor, but what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus' final words are 
persistent and they're pragmatic. Persistent because he had already urged the expert to, to do what he already knows is right. As if driving this point home, he repeats it at the very end. His words are pragmatic because he reminds the expert that correct theology is insufficient for inheriting eternal life, especially if you don't apply it to your own life, especially if you don't live it out. If we don't do what we know is right, then all our correct answers to Bible questions won't get us one step closer to God or his kingdom. Now, we might be asking the exact same question. Who is my neighbor? And I think if Jesus were here, he would tell us a parable. But because you and I don't travel up and down back roads on a donkey, and we don't have a Jewish priest here at MVF, and we definitely don't know of any Samaritans, we sometimes lose the impact of this parable. And so what we've done is we've rewritten this parable in modern terms, uh, maybe something you will relate to. I want to share this modern-day parable with you, and then I want you to take some time to answer the last set of questions. And my prayer and hope is that maybe as we go through this modern-day parable, our eyes are going to be open to who our neighbor is, and maybe we'll understand a little bit how shocking Jesus' parable was to his original audience. So let me share this with you. Imagine, if you will, a family of disheveled, unkept gypsies living out of their car. They're stranded beside Colfax on a Sunday morning. They're obviously in distress. I mean, the father has pulled the entire family out of the car because it's just way too hot. He can't keep them all in the car. And so the mother is sitting on a tattered suitcase. Her hair's uncombed, her clothes are in disarray, and with a glazed look in her eyes, she's holding this smelly, poor-clad, crying baby. The father's unshaved. He's wearing dreadlocks. He's dressed in coveralls. He has this look of despair in his face as, as he tries to corral the other two youngsters. Besides them is a run-down old suburban. It's got out-of-state plates on it. It's obviously given up the ghost. It's not going anywhere. Down the road came a car. It's driven by the local pastor. He's on his way to church, and though the father of the family is out there waving frantically, the pastor's thinking to himself, look, I... I can't keep my congregation waiting, and so he acts as though he doesn't see him, and he drives right by. Soon comes another car, and again, the father's out there waving furiously, but the car is driven by the president of the local school board. See, he's headed to Aurora. He's late for a statewide meeting trying to figure out how to reopen the schools in the fall, and so since he's running late, he too acts as though he doesn't see them, and he keeps his eyes straight on the road ahead of him, and he drives right on by. The next car to come by is driven by a local outspoken atheist. He's returning from an Antifa protest. He's never once been to church in his life. But when he sees this family in distress, he can't help himself. He stops and he takes the whole family into his own car. After asking the family their story and figuring out what's needed, he takes them to the local KOA. He pays for an entire week's lodging for the entire family, and while that's going on, he takes their car and has it towed to the local shop. He's paying for that to be repaired as well. In the meantime, he also lent the father his car so he could go and look for some work, and he gave the mother some cash so she could go to the Dollar General and buy some food and, and paid for some clothing for the kids. Now let me ask you, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man? Thanks for joining us here at Mountain View Fellowship. We'd love the chance to meet you in person. We gather each Sunday at 9 and 1045 a.m. at 1955 Headlight Road in Strasburg, Colorado. If you aren't able to join us in person, 
We'll meet you right back here next week. God bless.